Hello coaches and welcome back to another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Most of you know Rodney Harmon is one of the top coaches in college tennis, entering his ninth season as the head women's coach at Georgia Tech. But did you know that he made the quarterfinals of the US Open while still enrolled as a student athlete at SMU? Did you know that he was the first African-American male to become the president of the PTR in 2018? His list of accomplishments to date are truly amazing and there are many more yet to come. In this podcast, we discuss some of Rodney's playing accomplishments, his early days coaching the men's team at Miami, his experience coaching the top US players while at the USDA, and he provides some viewpoints on the lack of diversity in the game of tennis and college tennis coaching ranks. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rodney. Rodney Harmon, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Coaches Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into this today. You have such a rich history of, of coaching experience. You've coached at uh, two college programs and worked with the USTA, worked with a lot of pro players and, and obviously were a, was a phenomenal player yourself. So um, I, I'm just interested in, in taking you back to your first college coaching job. You're the head men's coach at Miami from 1995 to 1997. Can you talk about maybe how the job has changed or evolved in the intervening years? before you returned back to the college tennis world at Georgia Tech in 2013? Yeah, life has changed changed a ton from when I left Miami uh, to when I started Georgia Tech. And I think one of the biggest things, obviously, the internet. Internet has changed the way recruiting happens. It's changed tennis's focus all internationally with more players uh, from around the world who now want to be a part of college tennis. Um, it's also changed recruiting because now, you know, the recruits can now get online and see what your school looks like beforehand. And so it makes things a lot more competitive than it was before. And you see a lot of, of schools that now have more international players than, than in the past than when I started at Miami. That would be one thing. The next thing is there are greater restrictions on the amount of time you can practice and the number of matches a team can schedule. So they put, you know, those rules in place to – I think in some cases for the student athlete's benefit, but it definitely limits the amount of time that you can spend on court and really help players improve and, and specific areas of their game, especially if you're having to make a wholesale change of their game. If you're having to look, maybe change a grip um, on a stroke, I mean, you really have to be very careful and make a decision whether you can really do that because you don't have as much time as you did in the past. And then lastly, you have more players. They're looking to play pro events. Uh, during a college season. When I was at Miami, we didn't have that so much. Most people just were eager to get into college and, and play the fall college tournaments and try to prepare for the spring. Um, and now, I mean, many of the players that come in that are highly ranked that have either ATP or WTA rankings or either or even high ITF rankings, they're really looking to see if, you know, they can go play pro events. So that has changed mm. so- as well. Yeah. So would you say the the job has become uh, more challenging than it sounds like? So your your time on court has been reduced, which, um, you know, equals more challenges. But then the the time spent recruiting has, has increased a great deal. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, definitely has, has happened. I mean, you have to make decisions now on someone's game or on a player based on where their game is in the, their development window. And a lot of times you may see someone who has a lot of physical ability and, and has 
parts of their game that looks really good, but they need a wholesale change, maybe a backhand grip change, or maybe they need a big uh, grip change or swing change on the serve. And you now have to try to determine, hey, will I have enough time to really work with that player to really help them get to where they need to get to? Or should I take a player who doesn't have quite the talent, but who has more of the pieces of their game in play? Mm. Okay. So, so you left Miami then after a couple of years, you joined the USTA as the national coach, you advanced the role of director of men's tennis. What were some of the key lessons you learned during those years uh, that now have the greatest impact on how you run your program at Georgia Tech? You know, I think there are a couple of things. I think the first thing is the importance of planning and having a plan for each player's game. So for me, it's, I look at the player development aspect of it, and I look at each individual player's games and try to look at, assess where they are right now, and then where I can project them to be over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, and then putting together a plan with them to try to help them reach that goal. I think one of the things that I learned that was most important when I was doing the USTA was the importance of working with each player's personal coach. And so I spend significant amount of time talking to their personal coach before they come. I share the initial um, developmental plan with their personal coach because that coach has been the one that's nurtured their game and has built their game and they know their game better than I do. And so I want to make sure I get as much input and information from them as I can so that I can hopefully not try to re- not to try to remake or do things that they may have tried that didn't work but also to make the transition to college tennis as smooth as possible for the player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and with the developmental plan, Rodney, so I, I actually sat through the USDA high performance um, certification course la- last January, and they take you through really how to do an in-depth, um, you know, player development plan. But uh, short of, of that, um, you know, coaches not being able to, to go through that course, how would you advise them to, to come up with a plan? Is it, is it just uh, breaking down each of their strokes and, and, you know, maybe the four areas, the, the tactical, technical, physical, mental? Um, how do you go about that? And how would you encourage coaches to, to come up with a development plan for their players? Well, I think you have to be realistic with the amount of time that you have with the player first. So you have to really determine, you know, how much time do I have with them in the fall when I can really impact change, real change, because in the spring, you're really trying to prepare and play. So I think the first thing is understanding how big your window is. I think the second thing is assessing where they are with their games, both technically, tactically, um, physically, um, and strategically. And then lastly, especially in this current college climate, what I do, and it's been helpful and, and effective for me, is to really just pick two things that I feel will make the most impact on their game in the next six to 12 months and really try to put together a plan to fix or try to address those two areas of their game Mm. as best I can with input from their personal coach and input from the player. And so it's really a three, a triangle method where we, each of us has, you know, our input. This is what I, this is what I see for the future. This is what the coach has seen and where they are now. And this is what the player can say, Hey, I agree with this. Well, this is something I don't agree with. Um, this is how I envision myself playing. I mean, one of the first things I ask any of the players that we bring on uh, to our team and on the campus is, who's your favorite player and why? And who do you feel like you would play the most like and why? Mm. 
mm. because those two questions will give you a, a really insight into where the players sees their game going and the, and maybe the the type of style they would want to play moving forward. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's great advice. And and so we talked about some of the lessons you learned, but how do you think you you personally evolved as a coach? You know, during your your time with the USTA, and and um, you know, what would you tell the the nineteen ninety five version of Rodney Harmon getting started in <laughs> Carl Gables? <laughs> um, you know, basically knowing what I know now, uh-huh. a couple of things. The first thing is. Uh, trust my instincts, my intuition, and my eyes. Trust what I see. Um, worry less about rankings. And res- I mean, obviously, you have to look at results, but I think you really want to look at where someone's game could go. Find out as much about the person as you can. And if your instincts and your intuition tell you yes, that's a person you probably want to spend more time with. Sometimes we just get kind of locked in with rankings and UTR rank and nothing against UTR because I think it's a great tool, but you know, are they a 10 or are they 11 or that? I worry less about that. I just, what my eyes see um, with their strokes and when I watch them play, how they handle themselves on the court, how they react to various types of players. Um, do they have good sportsmanship? Are they fair? And that's really important. If are they fair? Do they make fair calls and are they respectful to their, to their opponent? Mm-hmm. That that's one thing I would say. The next thing is always have a natural curiosity where you want to keep learning and, and new information and new trends and don't just kind of get locked into one style, but or one type of information, but just be open to, to learning new and different ways to teach the game and to share information with the players. And, and one of the things I really enjoyed working at the USGA was, we used to have a lot of talks with the different uh, coaches staff and we would discuss and argue and laugh and joke back and forth about different styles of play, way to teach technique, um, way to teach tactics. And it was really, really great. And it's, it's funny because a lot of those coaches that I worked with, whether it was David Rodini, who's at TCU or Mike Sell, uh, who's at LSU, mm-hmm. we still laugh when I talk to them because we used to have these sit in the room and have these talks about, you know, how do you deal with this type of style or, you know, would you change this grip on this player? And I think, you, you know, there's a lot of learning that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also tell myself as I've gone through the process is college coaching is a lot more than just on-court coaching. And a lot of times that's what everyone focuses on, but there's a lot to it than just on-court coaching. I mean, you have to manage this person and help them transition from, being a high schooler or being a good junior to being a good college player and being a a young adult. And so there's a lot that goes into that, the nurturing, the helping them understand uh, accountability and responsibility, not just for their tenants, but also for their actions and how they treat others um, and making sure that they they get their schoolwork taken care of. Um, So there's a lot more to it than just the, the on-court coaching side. Mm-hmm. And, and was that a, a big surprise for you when you, when you got started at Miami in 95, just how much kind of work there was to be done away from the court uh, with your players, but also from an administrative standpoint as well? Yeah. You know, I, I think I was aware because I played college tennis as well. And I know that um, I was a challenge for my college coach. So <laughs> <laughs> I was aware of what was going to happen. Okay. Cause I, you know, it, it, there's a funny saying my mom used to say to me, and I never understood it until I became a parent 
and she would say this is, I hope you have a child just like you one day. <laughs> and, now, and I'm sure my coaches, Dennis Ralston and John Newman, were thinking, I hope you have a player just like you one day. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. So you, you, you knew what you were getting into then. There was no. Oh, yeah. I knew I was getting okay. And I was just hoping, praying it was no one like me. Okay. That's great. <laughs> Um, so, so I'd love to, to get into your, your playing career a bit and, and, you know, you're, you're the only, the third African-American male to reach at least the quarterfinals of U.S. Open with decades separating yourself, Arthur Ashe and James Blake. Can you maybe take us through your journey as a young man of color from, from when you started as a tennis player through your rise in the professional ranks? Uh, I think coaches would love to hear your story. Well, um, you know, my story is kind of an interesting an interesting one only from the standpoint is that I grew up during the civil rights era. I was born in 1961. Mm -hmm. And so I started playing when I was nine, which means 1970. So I, I'm a child of the late sixties, seventies, eighties. And that's really the era I grew up in. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up in Richmond, Virginia, which is a great place uh, for tennis because it, it has been named uh, Tennessee, Tennessee, US, USA by, um, the USTA. Um, and so I was lucky enough to grow up on the same side of town that Arthur Ashe grew up on. Um, so obviously everyone knew Arthur and his mm -hmm. family. Our families knew each other. Um, Arthur's dad was a policeman at the park where I grew up. Hmm. <laughs> and wow. I learned to play in a program called NJTL, which is the same program that Venus, Venus and Serena mm -hmm. and James Blake started in. Right. Um, so that's how I got started. And I was as I started to get better, I picked up a, a coach, saw me, his name is Willis Thomas. He was um, Arthur Ashe's doubles partner growing up and he lived in DC. So he took me on and worked with me through the juniors and helped me develop my game and took on a role, a uh, dad role as well. So did a lot for me. Um, and then at 17, I went to the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy Mm -hmm. And through this whole development, I was a, I guess I was a, a okay, good national player. Uh, when I went to Balateri's, I was there. I guess Paul Anacone, Eric Carita, and uh, I, uh, Kathleen Horvath, and Jimmy Arias, and Aaron Crickstein. So there were so many good, Pablo Araya. I mean, so many good players there. And Mike Palmer Jr., just a bunch of really good players. And I, my game really uh, flourished. In my last year juniors, I was... Uh, four in a nation in singles and one in a nation in doubles. Mike De Palmer Jr. and I won Kalamazoo. So we got a wild card to the U.S. Open mm. in doubles, uh, which was great. Yeah. <laughs> you wow. can imagine. I'm sure. <laughs> and then I uh, went to Tennessee and I played for John Newman there. And I played um, doubles with a guy named Mel Purcell, who many people that are older but involved in tennis know Mel. Mel played. We, we uh, played pro tennis. I think he got the top 20. Um, but we played doubles. And we won the NCAA doubles title my freshman year in college. Hmm. Another wild card. <laughs> I think, you know, I think Rajiv Ram and I, the only two that won Kalamazoo and NCAA back-to-back -back doubles. Okay. That's interesting. It's a, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. I mean, I think we're both really good at picking good partners. <laughs> I doubt that so much. <laughs> I tell you, cause my, I mean, yeah, cause I was fortunate. I mean, Mike Palmer Jr. is a great, great player. Mm -hmm. He was top 30 in singles and top 15 in doubles. And Mel Purcell was a great player as well. Um, and then after a year there, my coach, uh, John Newman, left Tennessee and went to Vanderbilt. And so I ended up transferring um, to SMU. Mm -hmm. um, I had a long 
talk with Arthur because um, Arthur had, had helped me get to the ball trade tennis academy and helped me a number of times throughout this growth point in my career. Um, and when I talked to him about schools, he, I thought he was going to tell me he wanted me to go to UCLA, which is where he went to school. Mm. But he said, well, I think you should look to go to SMU. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and he said, because the guy who was the Davis cup captain when I was on Davis cup, Dennis Ralston is a coach. Right. And I know Dennis will help you and your game will get better. And he is um, highly disciplined and he's got great moral character. And so, you know, he's going to make sure that he's tough enough with you, but your game's going to get better. And, and uh, he was right. I mean, Dennis helped me so much with my game and helped me grow up a lot. And, you know, Dennis is um, a person that I learned a lot about college coaching because he was a person who was less worried about the result because he would rather default a match from a player who had, who had was cursing on the court, had done something wrong than to win a match the wrong way. Like mm. the moral side of it was the most important part to him. Yeah. And I learned that from him. I mean, and he would, if you didn't do what you're supposed to do, uh, we weren't allowed to throw rackets, curse, any of that stuff. I mean, if you, you were going to be sitting down, I don't care how good a player you were. We got to the finals of the NCAAs and singles my senior year. And I think the semis my junior year. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a really good team and Dennis did just such a great job with us. And then from there, during my, between my junior and senior year, I had a great summer. I went out and played and, and, and got to, I think the quarters of Washington and did well. There was a tournament, a pro event in Cleveland. I did pretty well. And, and um, then I did well at Cincinnati. And the next thing I knew, I got a wild card to the U S open. And mm -hmm. um, the funniest thing was the first match I was, I'd gotten food poisoning the night before the first match. So I was so sick the morning of my first match, I couldn't warm up. Yeah. <laughs> and I was feeling so bad for myself. I was like, Oh, I told my coach Willis Thomas. Mm -hmm. I was like, Willis, I, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> Here comes a tough love special. He said, well, you need to go out there and play. And if you fall out, I'll just come out and pick you up. <laughs> went, oh, okay, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great. So I went out and I think, you know, I managed to win that match in four sets. And mm -hmm. then I just, I, you know, I just got, just played well. Um, my, Best match of that whole stretch was my round of 16 match against Elliot Telcher, who was seated, I think, seven or seventh or eighth. He was mm -hmm. seventh or eighth in the world at the time. And I won seven, six, and a fifth mm -hmm. um, on grandstand court, which was the, the longest match I'd ever played. I think it was four and a half hours. And um, I really looked up to Elliot because he's a bit older and I'd watch him play at Kalamazoo and know how good a player he was. So it was, it was a battle uh, throughout, but. I was fortunate enough to, to win that match and get to play the quarters against Jimmy Connors and Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, you talk about their food poisoning. I've had food poisoning plenty of times in my life. It's <laughs> absolutely miserable. I can't imagine playing four sets and then beating one of the best players in the world, seven, six, and in the final set. I mean, where did the mental toughness come from? Uh, do you believe to, to allow you to, to push through those challenges? You know, to be honest with you, we had to overcome so much. Um, I'm not from a wealthy family. So to just be able to play tennis and just be able to compete, um, you have to go through so many things that happen that aren't easy. 
And so much is dependent upon you. I mean, many times if I could, we couldn't afford to play indoors, I would go hit against the wall and sometimes it would rain and I would still hit against the wall to just try to get practice in. I mean, one of the HBCUs up the street from me, Virginia Union University was kind enough. Uh, their coach would see me out hitting against the wall in the rain. He said, Hey man, you can come in the basketball arena for training and hit against the wall anytime you want just so you're not getting wet. Um, and so, you know, you have to overcome so many challenges um, just to, to keep playing. I mean, I think the biggest thing was I just love tennis. So to me, it wasn't really um, something that I really thought was a big problem. It's just like, okay, well, I'll just keep playing. So if they'll let me play here, good. I'll go in here and hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would find different people to hit with, but just with different things that come up in life that are, that are challenges, that are hurdles. You just have to keep working and try to find a way and, and keep going around. And I think that's why I think on the court, I was uh, always resourceful. Um, and then I would always try to find a way to give myself the best chance to compete and fight and scrape. And, you know, sometimes you win and sometimes you don't, but at least you can, you know, you know that you put forth the best effort you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then, so why in your opinion, Rodney, have, have more young players of, of color not been able to replicate the success of, of yourself or James or Arthur? Uh, I think there's a couple of different reasons. I would say the there's a, a limit number of coaches of color now who are working in local communities. We just have a, not enough coaches mm-hmm. out there. And I just think it helps to have someone that looks like you. That doesn't mean you can't do it because the first person who taught me to play was a, a white guy. Mm-hmm. And Colin Gibb, he was teaching in the summer there and he did a great job teaching at our local program. But the fact that Willis was with me and I know, and also I watched um, John Wilkerson and, and Zena Garrison, Lauren McNeil, um, I just think when you have someone that looks like you, that you that understands your struggles and what you're going through and can be there with you when things aren't good um, versus when things are good, because when things are going great, you know, you have a ton of friends. It's just when things aren't going great and when you're struggling is when you really need to help. I think that's part of the issue. Um, and I think the test has become so, so competitive. The, the depth now is incredible. I mean, the number, the one, the player who's 100 in the world is really good on a men's and women's side. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the old days, basically the top 10 was a top 10. And after maybe 20 or 30, it was hard to see, you know, someone from the higher uh, group get, get beaten by someone ranked lower. And now you'll see it because the players are bigger, faster, and stronger. Mm. Right. Right. And, and so how have opportunities for players and coaches of color improved since you were a college tennis player back in the eighties or, or have they in your view? You know, I don't, I think it has, it's different, but I don't think it's better because they're in the older, the days when I came along, the American tennis association, the ATA mm-hmm. had really their own circuit that rivaled the USDA circuit, which was a separate circuit. And black players played and white players played ATA tournaments. So by and large, it was a place where you went. You saw people that looked like you. Um, you saw adults. They're playing adult, the adult events as well that looked like you that were successful, that were there who were giving you encouragement um, for your tennis. You also played and saw the kids that looked like you. And so that when you went out to play USTA events, you didn't feel quite so off balance because you had made friends with a few African-American kids that would, would also be playing some USTA events. Um, I think the ATA is not as involved in, in tournaments anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think it's harder. I think it's harder to have coaches make a living in public parks. 
mm. if you're not in an area where it's affluent. So you just, it's, it's, the programs aren't quite as organized. I mean, in some places like in Philadelphia, New York, um, Miami, um, LA, I mean, there's some places where they're really good programs and by and large, I mean, good players can come from everywhere. It doesn't have to just be certain little pockets. And, uh, that's kind of what, what I see. The problem is, I just, I don't think it's, there's just, Tennis is so expensive in this country mm-hmm. that it's really, really hard when you can get a basketball and go shoot baskets or get a football and go throw a football or run track. Um, and so, I mean, I'm hoping that we can find a way to get more and more players of color involved in tennis and encourage them to play and enjoy the game, whether they become pros, whether they just go to college or just, just learn the game to be able to play. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we can do a better job of that in the next year. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I was living back in Ireland the, the last three years, just moved back to the States last summer. And, and it is interesting just contrasting just the, the cost of, um, you know, junior sports, uh, not just tennis, but uh, as an example, my, my son is 15 years old and he was playing soccer at a high level back in Ireland, but literally cost us maybe 500 euro for everything. That's jerseys, that's training, that's um, you know, uh, uh, travel to, to his matches, like 500 euro. And then we come back here and I think we spent close to $10,000, you know, Ouch. last year, which is just, Ouch. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And, and so, and I, I know tennis is even more expensive, at least in, in soccer, you can spread the expenses around amongst more players and, and, uh, you know, especially with the travel and it's more organized, you're going as a team, um, you know, you're going for a day or, or two days or three days with tennis, you know, you're changing flights and all the rest of it. But yeah, I mean, just uh, the whole system needs changing because we're just leaving out so many players that could be, and that's what I say to my son. There's, there's lots of players much better than him that just can't afford to do it. And, and so, but, um, okay, well, look, we, I know we're, we're talking about, about these issues and, and we'll keep talking about them. But you mentioned recently to me that your, your assistant coaching position had been open and that you, you did not receive one candidate of color. Um, you know, so what is holding back coaches of color applying for these positions or do we just not have enough coaches of color entering the coaching workforce, you know, or tennis industry in general? I think it's as much that we don't have enough people of color that want to get involved in the industry. I think they don't miss, they may not see it as a viable option for their career. They may not understand the certifications and everything that you need. Uh, if you decide that you want to be involved in college coaching, um, it was a bit disheartening because I mean, obviously Georgia tech is here in Atlanta. So you would think we're in the Southeast where a large majority of the tournament level African-American players come out of the Southeast because mm-hmm. there's non-states, not counting Florida, but there's non-states in the Southern section alone. <laughs> so I was a little bit just missed or surprised um, that no one of color applied. Um, but I think what that tells me is that we have to do a better job of exposing these types of job opportunities long-term because you have to prepare for them. You can't just all of a sudden just say, Hey, I want to be a college coach. You have to most likely have played college tennis or played a reasonably high level. You have to have gotten a US, US, you know, USPTA PTR certification. You, you need to have done some coaching in your, in, in your area. 
Um, so you need to find a junior development program that you can learn and find a mentor where you can learn how to teach. I mean, there's a variety of things that you need to be able to do. So I think there's a bit of work that we have to do moving forward. And I think the key is obviously the group of people who play kids who play tennis at HBCUs and through NJTL chapters and through USTA foundations and kids who play at ATA events. Cause many times, Kids who play the ATA tournaments may never play USDA events or mm-hmm. play very few USDA events. So we have to kind of make sure that we had every possible pocket where you'd have someone that's either that's African-American or Hispanic or Asian who may have interest in playing and make sure we get the information out because we'd love to see the college coaching field more diverse. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And, and what advice do you have for young coaches of color in the college coaching ranks as to how they might advance their careers as college tennis coaches? Well, I think the first thing is knowledge is power. So make sure you understand all that you need to do or you need to attain to be in consideration for a position. Because the first thing you want to make sure that when someone looks on a list of necessary uh, requirements, you have them. So, okay, yeah, play tennis at a reasonably high level. So you played in a section, you played nationally, or you played college, hopefully played college tennis. I mean, I think having played some level of college tennis is key. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be a college coach, I would say this, the certification for me is important. Um, you, the person may not have that right away, but I just think some, um, development background and that sometimes could be, Hey, in the summer, you know, I, I helped out at a gene development program in my city. Um, but I just think you want to show that you, if you don't have a certification that you're willing and understand the need to do it, there's a lot of USTA information that's out there that's available and it's free online Mm -hmm. that you can get more information. And so I just think, I guess what I've been looking for was someone who had a previous college coaching background um, or previous had played college tennis and had some previous college coaching background. Mm -hmm. And I guess the certification part we could all figure out. um, But Unfortunately, I never got that far because no one applied. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. And then, and then, what? A, what about when a coach comes in and and has you know uh, been able to get some experience, maybe as a volunteer or a part-time assistant coach or a graduate assistant coach, but they're they're eager to one day, you know, uh, be the head coach at, at Georgia Tech, like yourself. What, what advice would you have for them in terms of how do they progress their career once they've got their foot in the door? Well, I, I think the volunteer coach um, idea is really a key, key one. Um, the problem is, can you keep yourself financially solvent while you do this? <laughs> right. the key. Yeah. But for example, um, Christy Lynch was our volunteer coach at Miami. I mean, I'm sorry, Georgia Tech. And then when our assistant at the time, Allison Severia, left to go to Oregon, Christy became the assistant coach at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. Then she became the associate head coach at Georgia Tech. And then in June, I'm sorry, July, she was named head coach at Clemson. Mm-hmm. And it was a six-year pass. Um, but that's a, an idea of a way you could work yourself up to gain, inf- gain the experience and knowledge you need to move forward. But I tell you, the role of being a vol- volunteer was really key. Um, because you can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, I think one of the most important things is to find a mentor and someone who can really guide you and help you. Because tennis is, if you're not plugged into our little world, 
you can feel so lost that you don't really know kind of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find a mentor and someone who can help you make the right um, choices and the right decisions about your, your jobs is really key because you want to always try to keep moving up where you can. And sometimes the move up is not necessarily in salary, but it may be working in a specific conference or for a specific coach who can help you gain more knowledge and something you need to, to know. But you, want, you sometimes need someone to guide you for you to kind of understand what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, Rodney. And and just for for listeners, if we have coaches that are are, are listening to this, or, or you know, I get an email maybe once a month or so from a person outside the college coaching industry asking how they can get into this industry. So, in chapter two of our our master class, we we have some information there that will be helpful to our listeners if they're interested in, in making their way through this profession. So, Rodney, we're just we're gonna we're gonna move into something a little lighter. The, a rapid fire okay. round and ask you some, some, uh, quick questions here, but, but you can, you can spend as long as you want answering them. I'm just going to uh, <laughs> ask them quickly. So well, what is a book that okay. made a major impact on you as a coach? Coach Wooden's pyramid of success mm. oh. is my, one of my favorite books. I read through it all the time. Uh, John Wooden is one of my favorite coaches. And I, uh, even though I never got to meet him, I just, when I read, uh, his different books, um, I just learned so much from them. It's less of, as much about the importance of fundamentals and doing things right. So you can't do them wrong, but also the importance of doing things the right way and teaching those who play for you, the values that you want them to have, not just on the field or on the court, but also in life. So I would think, you know, coach Wooden was a pretty, pretty special person. So I really, really love his, his book. And this one particular book, I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Great. And and what is your favorite drill to do with your team at Georgia Tech? Oh God, that's a tough one because <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a drill machine. Um, <laughs> but I well, think well, as what, I, as what I is think your maybe it, what's your uh, the team's favorite one then maybe? How about the least favorite one? Your least favorite <laughs> one is probably my favorite one. I would say um the, a tri- we have a drill called the the triangle baseline drill, which is one of my favorites. And basically, there is it's a one-on-one ground stroke uh, drill. And so on one side, the person who's controlling the action will have a, a target right in front of the center of the court, about four feet off the center. And then there'll be uh, the other person will have, um, will be the reactor who'll be moving left and moving right. And there'll be targets that'll be set up about five to five and a half feet to the left and right. So it'll be two targets. And they'll be about five feet from the sideline, about five feet from the baseline. And the goal of this drill is for the person who's reacting to be able to play the ball back through the middle um, to take away angle. And then the goal of the, the person who's controlling it is to move around, hit as many forehands as they can and move the targets, move the ball out to the targets. So you can, what it simulates is being able to move the ball around using your forehand on balls at the middle of the court without playing too close to the sidelines, but still being able to make the opponent move. Excellent. Uh, we've actually just, yeah, no, it does. I was following it along. I got it. Um, I I love it. Yeah, no, it sounds like a good one. We've actually just started a a coach's drill space. So maybe if you get time this fall, take a video of it and send it into me and I'll, I'll upload it. Yeah. We, we, and and any other drills you have as well. So (laughs) we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take anything you got. Um, so name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, whether it's in coaching or just in life in general. Uh, the importance of team culture. 
I mean, the importance of the team understanding the need to treat, to treat each other and everyone in, that they come in contact with, with, with respect and, and kindness and honesty and, and those, you know, those, those things that we want all of our children and people we come in contact with to, to treat us that way. So that's really, I mean, team culture is so important because not only does it make for a great environment, but you're able to teach the lessons of life to your team, as well as it really makes it fun to be around your team when you have a great team culture. Mm, that's for sure. And, and do you have a favorite quote, Rodney? Of course. <laughs> hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Like it. Um, and then tell us one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they leave uh, Georgia Tech. Um, two things. Embrace the differences of the people that you come in contact with and treat everyone you come in contact with with kindness, compassion, and empathy. And I think that's really the thing that, because at our, at our school, we have people from all over the world, as most schools do, and you, they come in contact with some of the brightest people in the world. Um, and they're different. They have different backgrounds. Um, they come from a different place, but embrace that difference. Sort of learn from them, but do it in a kind, compassionate way and always with, a, with empathy in your heart for others. Mm -hmm. that's great okay well rodney i i think we did it uh i really really <laughs> enjoyed that that was uh it was a joy for me to to learn a little bit oh, more about fun. your background and i think uh coaches will uh get a lot out of this so thanks so much and look forward to connecting no with you hopefully in person next time okay buddy thank you so much thanks rodney bye-bye all right take care bye-bye <laughs>